Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here today. I've got Tom Singer from Austin, Texas on the show. Tom is a keynote speaker. He also does sales training and MCs corporate events. He's also dipped his toe into the old stand-up comedy world here recently. In the past year, he's hit the stage 65 plus times, and he's found that that experience in the stand-up world has helped him in the corporate world. So we'll get into all that. I'd like to take just a second to recognize our sponsor for this episode, John McCormick. John has taken the online writing class and recently the live performance class here in Nashville, Tennessee. I thank Tom for uh, doing that. And in turn, that sponsors the podcast. Thank you very much, sir. All right, I'd like to introduce you to our guest now. He's a keynote speaker, MC, and he has his own podcast called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. I'll link to that in the show notes. But right now, let's get into it with Tom Singer. I've got Tom Singer on the line. Tom from Austin, Texas. How's it going, sir? I'm doing great, Rick. Thanks for having me. I've, I've listened to this show for a long time, and it's like, I feel like a fanboy. I get to be on it. Well, that's cool. And I've listened to your show as well, especially, you know, we kind of share two worlds, speaking world, and you're kind of dipping your toe in the comedy world, which we'll get to here in a little bit. Um, so when I look on your podcast, and especially when I see people that I know or I've seen speak before, it's always interesting to see how they kind of got to where they are. And for my uh, my followers that haven't really followed you yet, uh, they're going to learn a little bit about you today and and how they can pick up some tips for emceeing events, but also just kind of some overall knowledge about the speaking business. And, you know, just to give everybody a little backstory on which, what you've done and where you've come from, can you give us kind of the, the overhead view of how you got started into speaking and how you got interested in doing a little bit of comedy and then kind of what you did for business before that? Yes, yeah, so I started my career in sales and marketing, and I was pretty successful at it. I mean, I was a young kind of sales guy, had a 100% commission sales job, which scares a lot of people, but you know, I made good money doing it. Uh, and then I made the move over into marketing, and part of what I did in a marketing role, I, uh, one of my marketing jobs was I was the director of marketing for a big law firm for their Austin and Dallas offices. And they asked me to actually create a class for the lawyers on how to network and do business development, because I was good at it, they weren't. And I thought, God, they're going to hate this. And uh, I put together this class and the lawyers loved it. And they started having me do quarterly training on business skills. And after years of doing this, I switched firms with a group of lawyers to a different law firm. They had me doing the same thing. Somebody asked me, why don't you just do that for a living? And I was like, I don't, I don't think you can do that if you're not famous. And it was uh, this random lawyer. He wasn't even in one of the offices I worked with. He was in the Washington, D.C. office of the firm I worked for. And I had gone out there to do some facilitation. And he said, yeah, my ex-brother-in-law is a member of a thing called the National Speakers Association. You could check it out. And about five or six, seven years later, I ended up becoming a full-time professional speaker. And that's all I've done now for 10 years. That's great. And I'm curious, like, before you did your sales job back in school, were, were you in any kind of position where you were a, a leader of some sort, captain of a team or, you know, assistant to a professor or something where you'd like to be in front of people, kind of in, instructing them and guiding them? 
I probably always was kind of, you know, I guess if you want to say a leader, I think that's kind of weird to say I was always a leader, but I, I always was in those types of roles, but I also was really involved in drama when I was in high school and I wanted to major in drama in college. In fact, I wanted to be an actor or a comic. That was what I wanted to do. Gotcha. And I, I guess since you were in LA growing up, I mean, did, were you at old enough in LA to go out and see some shows or anything, or were you off to college and out of LA or how'd that go? No, I, I mean, in high school, I used to go see all the theater stuff. I mean, like the big traveling Broadway things, my parents would always take me and a friend uh, or my girlfriend when I was a senior in high school. But also the Ice House Comedy Club in Pasadena was just a couple miles. I grew up in our city called Arcadia, which is right next to Pasadena. Um, and I, I mean, it was three miles from the Ice House uh, Comedy Club. And you only had to be 16 to get in. And I'm Pretty sure that probably isn't true now, but you had to be 16 and you couldn't drink, but it was still a two drink minimum. So I remember this is like 1983 going and seeing a then not famous Paula Poundstone uh, and she was the headliner and we ended up getting seated in the front. We were all high school kids. We were all preppy kids, you know, kind of the 80s haircuts and the girls with the big hair wearing button downs and jeans. And we're ordered, I always remember we ordered uh, virgin strawberry daiquiris. So they came in these big things with umbrellas in them. And as the waitress walked in, Paula Poundstone makes a throwaway line like, oh, Hawaiian punch for everyone. And then she puts it down in front of, she'd already called us kind of the dorky kids. And she, they put it down with us. She goes, oh, and the dorky kids ordered it. And she started laughing and did like a five minute riff and crowd play just with my friends and I. And I always remembered that because I thought, God, that was so good the way she worked with the crowd. And it was fun to be kind of the center of attention for five minutes with the jokes. And then like three or four months later, she was on the, you know, the Tonight Show and, and all these things. And she became one of the hottest comics of the mid 80s. And I always remember because she hadn't really been famous yet. I always remembered that experience. And so, yeah, I used to go see comedy all the time. Her mind is really brilliant, you know, so that's interesting to see that you got to see her right before she kind of popped everybody else. But man, 1983, that's, that's a, a while back. Yeah. Well, I, maybe it was 82. I mean, I had a driver's license that much I know, but, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was definitely around that, that era. And, uh, uh, so that's what I wanted to do. And in fact, when I was 25 and I lived in Austin, the guy who was probably my, one of my closest friends at the time, we've sort of drifted apart. I used to say, I want to do an open mic night and he and his wife and my wife and I used to go to, uh, a club, I think it was called the Laugh Stop at the time in Austin. It's now called the uh, Capital City uh, Comedy Club. But we used to go all the time for shows with him and his wife. We'd go out to dinner, we'd go see comedy, and they would announce like, oh, open mic night, Sunday night. And I always talked about wanting to go. And I remember him saying, let's get drunk one night and go. I'll go with you. No one will know. And this is before cell phones, so no one would ever know if you bombed, right? So, And I never did it. So I was a featured comic in a show about a month ago. And he drove, he lives two hours away. He drove in to see it because even though we're not that close anymore, he drove in because he said, you wanted to do this so bad. He goes, I am so proud of you. Took you 25 years, but he goes, most, right. people, most people would never go there. Uh, but that's the thing about being a professional speaker and trainer. And then a, a master of ceremonies at corporate events as my career is I kind of got to fulfill my childhood wants of acting and comedy because I get to do that, even though I'm not comic speaker or a humorist i still get to be on stage and i still get to do that stuff that's pretty cool so what led you into your your first speaking you had the sales training behind you and this guy says hey you got to check out the national speakers association you know i can give a few of my eye-opening moments the first conference i went to but what were some of the first things from that first conference that you heard and you're like oh i can legitimately do this or you see somebody like whoa i could probably never do it the way they're doing it there's all kinds of 
first thoughts when you see there's a tribe of people that do something that you're kind of leaning towards? So do you remember that first convention in what year? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I remember being in sales and marketing. And when you're in sales and marketing, you go to a lot of conferences as an attendee. So your butt is in, you're the people with the butts. When we say butts and chairs, you're the butt in the chair. And I remember going to conferences and vividly, you know, being in like my mid thirties, watching these people uh, speak. And I thought they have a better job than I do. And so I always went up and talked to people like Harvey McKay or whoever the big speakers of the 1990s were. And then said, how did you get into this job? If they weren't famous already, if they kind of grew up in the speaking business, I'd always ask them the path. And I was really involved with Toastmasters. And in 1992, I came in, you know, arguably in the top 18 people in the world in the Toastmasters International Speech Contest. And people always say, well, what do you mean top 18 in the world? Well, there were nine regions. I think there's 10 now. There were nine regions who went to the finals. And there's five levels. You go six levels of contest. You start at your club. You go to the area. You go to uh, whatever they call it. And you work your way up to district, division, semifinals, region. And I went to the regional finals, and I came in second. I was the runner-up to the guy who went to the International uh, uh, Public Speaking Toastmasters World Championship. And I came in second to one of the nine guys who was there. So I always say I came in in the top 18 in the world. And sometimes people argue with me. I'm like, I don't know. There were nine people. Each of them had a runner-up. I was one of those runners-up. So uh, that gave me confidence that if I could do that, and this was about the same time the law firm was sending me all over the country talking to the attorneys and all the offices, and people were going, this is the best training I've ever been to as a lawyer that didn't have to do with legal skills. I, I sort of had the confidence. So then when like local rotary clubs and stuff were looking for people, I'm like, yeah, I'll speak. And it just grew from there. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we've got skills and talents and we sort of we sort of know that we want to do something but it takes somebody else to kind of give us the green light to kind of get past what they call that imposter syndrome or whatever and say hey you're doing great at this you should do it at this place and do it at another level and get serious and join the association all those things are you know those are like moments where you've got to say yeah i can or ah, nah, this isn't for me and it it's it's nice when you say yeah i should do that and it kind of fuels the fire for everything when you so you went from sales trainings, which you still do. I know you've got a program called Sales in a Box, where it's a full day, top to bottom, let's get your team ready to go sales training. But you have other programs now. What was your first program to grow out of your speaking business besides the, the sales training? So I started off talking about sort of uh, goal setting and networking. And, and, and the networking one is what really took off and built my career. It, it sort of became, when I became full-time 10 years ago, we were only a year into smartphones. And so I called the talk, uh, connecting with people in a gadget crazed world. And the same thing was I started this full time in 2009. I've been doing it on the side for a while, but uh, it was in the middle of the recession and everybody was worried about job security. What if I get laid off or they were laid off and associations got really excited because the way people get jobs, even today in our even more digital crazed world is a lot of jobs come through networking. People make referrals. Hey, you're looking for a job. This guy's really good. Or this woman, she's a great salesperson. And they tell somebody. And as the smartphone came out, everybody thought like live meetings were going to go away because we could just stream everything, and podcasts and everything else. Well, the meetings business the last 10 years has exploded because people are hungry to connect with other people. We're wired for it. And so I started researching and studying and what I had learned in sales. And I created this package about how do you use the tools of today but get back to the basics of human-to-human -human engagement. And so for 10 years, that had been, up until recently, my main speech. And it's changed and it's grown and I've redone it. I, the title of it now is The New Networking, 
colon, connecting with people in a gadget-crazed world because things have changed even the last three or four years in the way you get jobs and, and the way you network and the way you make sales and the way you stand out. So that was my topic until two years ago, I started researching how people felt about their own potential and the results they were getting. And so now kind of my growing topic is called the paradox of potential and it's how do you attain the possible but the part behind it is the fact that you have potential doesn't mean anything because potential without performance and results is useless. So that's, that's, those are my two topics that I mainly speak on, but they are both sales oriented topics and they're both leadership topics. So they get morphed depending on the audience. Yeah. I love that. And it reminded me, I have a friend that does a joke about potential and he's like, when I was dating in college, I had a, a huge asset. It was called potential. Cause I, I could be dating a girl and tell her I was going to be the doctor. I was going to be the lawyer. I was going to be the, you know, when you're in your 30, in your 30s, you have, uh, I'm still at home with my mom in the basement. So, you know, <laughs> he lost his edge. <laughs> but potential is, it's it's a resource. It's, it's, it's not tapped because it's potential. It's, it's not exponential yet where it's exploded and, and gone on to, to drive people to what they're doing. So in your um, program on potential, what are some things you tell people do to, maybe unlock that potential or to encourage the unlocking of somebody else's potential? So I've, I've surveyed about 500 plus people and then I've interviewed 400 on my podcast. And, and I ask many of those people, why do some people get across the gap between potential and results? Why? You know, because some people have a lot of potential and they never achieve anything. Mm. One of the main answers that, well, there's 10 answers that have just come up through hundreds and hundreds of people. One of the main ones is, is that people who really achieve tend to take ownership of their own life. And that has to do with the successes and the failures. And so when they fail, they don't sweep it under the rug. They go, oh yeah, I did that. And, and we lost millions. But boy, next time it's going to be better. And they actually learn from it. And I, I spoke to a conference and a, there was a lot of companies there. And a CEO came up to me and I met one of his employees. And when the employee walked away, the CEO said, you hit a reset button in him. He's one of my most difficult employees. And I said, what did I say? You know how it is when you speak. You're like, what yeah. did I say? Yeah. What was profound? God, I don't know. And he said, he goes, that part about taking ownership and not pointing fingers and blaming and saying, oh, it's the economy or, oh, it's because I'm a white male or, oh, it's because of this or that. He said, he leaned over to me and goes, I think I do that. And he goes, I want oh. to tell him, you think? <laughs> yeah. And he goes, but he, he, the employee asked the boss, don't let me do that anymore. And he goes, so he goes, you may have just saved him. He goes, because now when he does it, I get to call him out. And he goes, I'm excited because you hit a reset button in him. And that was his problem. So that's one of the big ones. Like I said, there's 10 and we're not here to talk about that. The other one though, that has changed my life is people who really succeed and, and reach more potential are willing to try new things. Like I have t-shirts now that I sell that say, try new things. Um, and it's a big part of what I talk about. And that's sort of how I ended up in stand-up comedy. I didn't, I mean, I wanted to do it, but I never had the guts. It's not like I woke up one day and said, I'm 51. I am brave today. I got challenged by another speaker who is also a professional improv and professional stand-up person to go to open mic with him in New York. I don't know if you know Andrew Tarbin, but Drew, he's awesome. And we're not, we're not close friends, but I was going to be in New York. And he said, come to open mic night with me. So a year, year and three or four months ago in New York City, in a comedy club in Greenwich Village, I did a five-minute stand-up <laughs> And I tell everybody, Jerry Seinfeld is not worried about job security because I did this. I mean, it wasn't good. Right. 
But by trying it, it showed me that why for 25 years did I not do it? So that's when I made the pledge. I was going to do an open mic night every week until I did a hundred open mic nights. And uh, so, but it was that try new things that came out of my own content and it's by living by it. So I've, I've tried a lot of things. I'm scared of heights. I jumped off the stratosphere in Las Vegas. I went, uh, you know, I've just done a bunch of things that normally I would talk myself out of. Right. Big message of that speech. That's funny. Well, I want to go back and unpack two little things I heard in there. One with the, you setting off a reset button with that individual at that conference. Sometimes people say, why do we need to bring in an outside speaker? The boss could have talked to that guy a hundred times and the guy could have had the same reasons and the boss could have said, okay, whatever, you you know, you'll never get the promotion, but we're not going to fire you. Having what the company or the organization is trying to communicate. And let's, let's be honest. A lot of CEOs, they're great. And the CEO, uh, just just by their nature, their skill set, they're not going to be a psychologist or somebody that can get through and maybe rephrase their message 10 different ways so that it finally gets accepted by the employee. The outside speaker kind of sets the tone. That's what you do, you know, kind of like conference catalyst is what I see on your website. You kind of get the conversation rolling and establish what the culture of this conference is going to be. And by doing that, now that guy was able to lean over to his boss. His boss wasn't telling him his boss was listening to the same thing. And it finally got reflected back in a way that he could receive that. So one for anybody that's wondering like, why would I ever want to be a speaker? I'm a comedian right now, or I'm thinking about being a speaker, but what do I have to offer? You have the, the outside voice to come in and reinforce or introduce new concepts to the audience or to that company. And that's really the value of the speaker that I've found, you know, in the 10 years that I've been doing the speaking kind of the same amount of time as you have started right there in the recession in 2008. And that, that was enough validation for me and a green light for me from a few people that I spoke to, to be worthwhile as a speaker. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to make sure I went back and and caught, but also you're trying new things and accept new challenges. You know, not only is that a, a great mantra and a great thing to do, but as you do it, you learn a, what, you know, if you weren't great at something, you're like, okay, now I know I can get that off of my, the back burner of my brain. We all have dozens, if not hundreds of things in the back of our mind. Oh, we should try that. Oh, that's on my bucket list. Or one day when I retire, or when my kids get off to college, all these things to be able to remove some of that clutter from the back of your brain. Eventually you're going to try something you like and you enjoy like stand up. Great thing about stand up as opposed to like jumping off the stratosphere. If you're not good at stand up, no harm done, but I don't know what happens if you're not good at jumping off the stratosphere. I mean, Well, that's true. And and you bring up a really interesting point that the thing I've learned in the last year plus is that comedy is a great metaphor for business. Because as I look at the people, you know, I watch all the Netflix specials and I look at all the famous comics, but I'm now starting to become friends. It took a while, but I'm starting to become friends with some people in the local comedy scene, some of which really have chops to go places. And yet you look at the ones who are really doing it and they do like I do one open mic night a week. Some of these people, Austin has like 23 open mic nights a week, including the one I just helped start. Um, And they're drawing 20 to 40 comics, every one of them. And some people are going to 10, 12 or more in a week. Like last night when the one I finished ended, people go, okay, we're going to Mr. Tramps now, you know, and that one starts at like 1130 or something. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going nice. I'm going home and going to bed. Yeah. Way past my bedtime. Because I'm old. (laughs) Thanks for the invitation, guys. Um, but as I look at them and the people who are really, you know, making a living or, or starting to really get into it on, on that level, it's things that business people should be able to learn from because it's, it, you're not good the first time. You got to keep going. It takes practice. You got to put in the reps. Uh, you got to network and meet the right people. I mean, I, I probably could write a whole book 
on what comedy has taught me about business. And, and I haven't even jumped in with both feet. Right. And it's interesting to see, I mean, there's so many parallels, like you said, between business and, and starting off comedy. You know, somebody might hire somebody in their business that, that has the potential. They can see that this person's effective and they've got a certain um, ability, but it takes the skill set and the training to develop that, to really tap into the full potential, to get the most out of that person. And the comedy the same way, without going to open mics, you're not releasing any of the stuff and you're not filtering through what doesn't work, just like a training. You can find out how to reset your habits and those things. What other things have you noticed maybe just on the microphone side of things that people do in comedy that's helped you as a, a, a keynoter as well as a host or an MC of a conference? So as an MC at corporate conferences, I often get brought back year after year, whereas the keynoter, sometimes it happens, but usually conferences want a different keynoter. But I have some groups that I've worked with for three, four years, and this year I had three different groups say to me, you're better. They're like, obviously we like you because we keep bringing you back, but you got better. What? Why? And it's because of those, the comedy. And they're like, yeah, but you're not doing jokes. And I'm not. And in fact, one thing I want to touch on before we're done is why corporate associations are a little bit scared of comedians because they don't want people coming in doing jokes. But they said, you're not doing jokes. I don't understand. And I said, I've learned two things. And one is I'm more confident, which is weird because I've done like 850 you know, speeches in my life. I'm more confident in the last year. And the second thing is I'm more playful with audiences. So I'm doing things now I never would have done 18 months ago. And it's coming from, I don't do any crowd work in my standup because I'm still too new and I'm not any good. But from watching people do that, from, uh, you know, from just being out there and trying things. And, and I see in business, too many people and speakers are notorious for this. They get a speech that works and they don't change it for 30 years. I mean, there are some famous speakers who are telling the same stories that they were telling 30 years ago. Now, it's okay to have a story. I have a story I use all the time. But my whole speech, if you watched a speech from two years ago, it's probably 40% different because they should always be growing. Comedians can't do the same comedy time after time after time. So those are the things I've learned from comedy that directly make me a better speaker and a better master of ceremonies. And I would imagine, too, in there, you've learned how to listen better over the past year. Because as a stand-up, the only way you can define if that joke worked is to listen to the response. And sometimes you know, from week to week, like, okay, that joke didn't work because I didn't take a beat and listen, or I didn't give them a chance to laugh. And when you, when you're emceeing a conference, of course, you've got the list of here's a, you're kind of a schedule, you know, almost like how a quarterback will manage the game in some ways where you've got to keep things moving in the right direction. There's, there are some, here you got three minutes before you introduce this guy or whatever. And maybe before the last year, year and a half, you'd have been more focused on that than engagement with the audience and knowing that you've, you've got that other part down from 850 speaking engagements but this fun part even as an MC at association conferences and these things you probably look forward to that time on stage more than ever before because you have that chance to play a little bit yeah I, I do like the, the the playfulness piece and the other thing is is that as a speaker if I do a keynote I usually have 60 minutes if I feel somewhere in there that I don't have the audience like in you know if I don't have them leaning in if they're not engaged I can turn up my energy. I can change the story. I can put in a story I know that always gets people to go, oh, what's he talking about? And, and I can do that because I have an hour to get them back. I, you know, if at the halfway point, I'm like, yeah, I'm not there. I have ways that I can work with the audience and get them excited. My whole goal is, is that you know, I want people, you know, I want to deliver value. So I want them to get content, but I also want them to have a shared experience. And so that's great. In a four-minute or three-minute open mic night set, 
If I don't have them every 30 seconds, it's over. I have no time to get them back. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing I'm learning is, is that you're right. You're listening and I'm learning like, okay, I'm not there. I'm faster now at noticing cues from the audience. What are some of the things that you hear from some of the people that you engage with over and over that a piece of advice or a nugget that they've really applied that got the most out of it? So one of the things I do, either as a keynote speaker or if I'm the MC, when I'm the MC, I mean I'm not I'm not a comedian MC. So I come what I come, my 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 song, if you will, is is my content. And so I take my keynote and I break it up into three, four, five, maybe seven minute chunks. And every day or every time they have a general session, I give a little bit of advice. Well, because my advice is about networking, I call myself the conference catalyst because I get people not only job skills for networking and sales and leadership, but also, hey, let's use this conference as a human laboratory. What can you do today? And I go to conferences and or I'll run into someone in an airport and they'll be like, you spoke at my association event three years ago. You've changed the way I go into networking events. Because I always tell people, you know, if you're an intro, I'm, I'm, I'm an extrovert, but I'm really pro introvert. I'm married to a real like serious introvert. Um, so like things like, you know, she doesn't go to the national speakers association. People are like, Oh, why isn't your wife here? Because there's 2000 people. It's like like fried her for a week. So, you know, we might do a family vacation. She'll come like while the conference is going on and she'll read a book. You know, she'll, she'll be like, come to the banquet. And she's like, I think room service is an awesome idea. She goes, I live with one speaker. I don't need 2000 of them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but she has taught me how to talk to introverts at conferences. And so like, I'll give advice, like, no, no, be true to yourself. Realize that some of these situations are draining for you where someone like me gets pumped up. Yay. It's happy hour. But I, I just talk Turkey, right? I just talk what it is. And I've had people come up and they say, I'd never liked the networking events, but you taught me how to just own who I am, go for, you know, an hour instead of three and meet two people. And they're like, that changed me. Like when I go to my chamber of commerce stuff at home, you've changed me. That makes me really happy when something I did has an impact, even on something that you might say, well, you taught somebody how to pass out a business card, who cares? But it matters to them. And if it helps them get a job someday, they may not even remember it was those skills. So yeah, I like that part of being a speaker. I think you're right. So many times we go to a conference and we're just thinking, and I've got to deliver my keynote, do what I'm supposed to do. But I think, and you've obviously made that transition too, is, is how can I engage these people to where not only do, do I make a difference today and tomorrow, but in a way that they want to bring me back and, and have me again. Um, we're going to have to wrap up here in a second, but I, I would like to get a couple of tips from you for people that are asked to MC an event. Maybe they're a comedian right now and they're being asked to MC something where it's not a, all about them. What's a good way for the MC to reflect back what the client wants done versus what you feel as an egotistic comedian want to get done. You know, you, you know how to do that, but for the, for those that don't, what are some tips of really staying focused on the job and still having fun? So I think, I think there's two sides to this. I want to take one is the speaker who gets asked to MC. And the other is the comic who gets to ask to MC a corporate gig. Cause I think they're very different. And I get a lot of inquiries now from both now that I know comics and of course, I know a lot of speakers, people are like, oh, I want to MC event, or I've been hired to MC event, and I just said yes and took the check, and I don't know what to do. Uh, the thing for the speaker is when you're the keynote speaker, I mean, we have peers in the National Speakers Association who all the time say, oh, it's not about me. I have no ego. It's just about serving. I think they're lying. I don't think you get into this business if you don't have a little bit of you like 
teaching. You like being on stage. And yeah, there's a service piece. I want, I want to do that. But there's a little bit of you like being the star of the show. The keynoter is the star of the show. And I think the best ones star. They do it. And they're also there to serve. It's not, I'm not saying that it's all ego. But it's, let's be honest. You don't go, hey, I want to be the speaker if you're really shy and don't want anybody to ever see you. The problem is, is that being the MC is not about you being the star of the show. Being the MC is about you making the speaker and more importantly, the attendees, the star of the show. So it's just a different way you have to face it. And I struggled with that at first because I, I, you know, guy who wanted to be an actor in a comic. So that was like, yay, I'm on stage now all day. So you have to learn how to do that and know what you bring and when to tell stories and when not to. And, and so it's, it's a fine line. For the comics who say, oh, wait a minute, there's money in being a corporate MC. Tom, how do I do that? There's a couple things you have to remember. A lot of meeting planners are scared of comedians. And as I've been a year into this, a lot of my clients are like, uh, no, we hired a comic once and it was a disaster. And right. So I lead with the fact that I'm not doing comedy. And I'm your speaker or your MC. I'm learning from comedy, but I like tell my potential clients up front, I'm not a comic because a lot of them will not hire people who say, oh, I have a background in stand-up because they've been burned. Um, and it's not from necessarily the same thing as the speaker, just being the ego and the star. It's from maybe getting dirty. I, I'm a believer that, that funny is funny. And I, I, I love, I'm trying to learn to be like a totally clean comic. Some of the stuff that I do, I'm not filthy. I'm still like this Boy Scout dad guy. But uh, I admire that. But I also can sit there and watch the raunchiest stuff. I think funny is funny. The other day I was talking to a woman and she goes, Define what you mean by corporate clean. And I actually said, listen to Rick Roberts. And I did his <laughs> podcast. And I said, I'm, I'm, I've wanted to be his best friend for like a year and a half. And now we're, gonna, we're actually going to have a conversation. Uh, so I said, I'll find out more. But I, I was explaining my version of corporate clean and what I'm trying to learn to do so that I can use some of this in my job. And she was like, oh, that's selling it. She like was dirty. She's really dirty. She didn't want to go there. And I said, great, then that's not a problem. But you're not going to be a corporate master of ceremonies. Because if you've got that stuff online and that's what you're putting out there, the corporations and, and the associations are going to go, ah! So you, I think that if you want to do it, you have, you have to know that you're a fit and, and not every comic is going to be a fit for a corporate audience. And I think, I mean, best example I can think of is Bob Saget. This was the dad on Full House and the dirtiest comic I've ever seen live ever in my life. And he's able to live in both worlds. So... Uh, I think it can be done, but I think it has to be an intentional decision to live in both worlds. And so I think you have to just be true to yourself and know who you are. But but if you're a comic and you want to do corporate emceeing, you know, you have to think through what does that client require of me? And if you cross the line, you won't be invited back and and they will tell other people. And they probably won't have another comic ever again, like you said, come back. So that's that's always my biggest thing. It's okay to try new things, obviously, right? We want to do that. We want to tap into our potential of what we can offer people. But we also have to know, I'm not ready for that yet. And if I'm close to being ready but not sure, I always try to advise you know new comics or speakers, maybe you volunteer to do it. There's no money on the line, but you act as if there was – because, you know, it is new for you. The first time I gave a keynote speech, it was new for me. And I, I made that deal with the guy who asked me to do it. I said, I've been a comedian forever. This is the first time. If it doesn't work out, just cover my flight back home and we can take the first flight out after I'm done. <laughs> I'll tell you the other piece that came to mind. So is be ready for the things you do. And, it, and yeah, you do have to push yourself when you're not ready. Do it in the right environment. So I hosted an, a new open mic night. And the first night was a train wreck. 
And it was a train wreck because I wasn't great. I was nervous. I was out of my comfort zone. There were 20 comics and I knew 18 of them. And like 12 of them were my favorite comics in town who I've gotten to know. And I was in over my head. The second thing was the sound system didn't work. And as you know, a bad sound system for comedy is worse than a bad sound system for giving a speech because you can, you can do things to get around a bad sound system if you're a keynote speaker or an MC. The, if you don't have the, the audio there and you're a comic, it, it, was a, it was just a train wreck. And I came home and I said, I felt like I was, you know, I did professional boxing. I felt like I had been in the ring with, you know, some professional boxer for a few hours and unprepared. And at the same time, I loved the fact that it was a train wreck because the comics were like, hey, you just kept pushing through. They admired the fact that this wasn't good, but I came up there every time and I was trying. But the same thing was, is there was no money. I wasn't being paid. What, how great to have a bad experience in a bar you know, off 6th Street in Austin where there's only 30 people watching me because you don't want to have a train wreck when someone's giving you a big check in a corporate in- environment. So they're entirely different, but I think we learn from mistakes and I think we learn from being out there, but don't do it when they're paying you. Right. I think we're going to need to leave it right around there today. How can people reach you best? Where do you like to reply the easiest and let us know where to find you? TomSinger.com. That's T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. And then uh, I'm on all the social medias, probably on Instagram more than anything else, but it's just at Tom Singer. Now I'll repeat that too, because I've got one of those names that doesn't always work right. So it's T-H-O-M Singer.com. You can find him and you can find Rick Roberts, R-I-K Roberts on Twitter and all those things as well. Tom, I'm looking forward to being a guest on your podcast a little later on today. And I appreciate you taking time for us. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Tom Singer. A lot of good insight there in the crossover between speaking and comedy and how comedy can help speaking and speaking can make you stand out even at an open mic. And if you enjoyed that episode, you might want to jump on over to his podcast, Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, and listen to him interview me about how you can get started in the comedy business and the correlation between business and comedy. Good stuff. Thanks again there, Mr. Tom Singer. We'd like to take a second for just a real quick iTunes review here. This is from Bubba Looney on July 12th. Rick is the real deal. Great guests, great interviews, great information. But I think best of all is that Rick feels like a guy that I want to hang out with during my commute. Well done. If you like comics, comedy, or the world of stand-up, you'll want to subscribe. Thank you. Bubble Looney. And, you know, I do want to be part of your commute, your treadmill, your exercise, your dog walk, wherever you're out there with your earbuds in and your headphones on. Hopefully you're checking out the School of Last podcast. Hey, if you leave an iTunes review, I'll read it on air, give you a shout out. Do that and help me get the word out about this show. Thanks again to our editor for this episode, Doc Kennedy. The show would not exist without an editor. Thank you, Doc. I'll talk to you guys later. Stay safe and stay funny. listening to the school of laughs podcast if you'd like to hear more school of laughs podcast you can find them on itunes and stitcher.com and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for information on upcoming live and online classes visit schooloflaughs.com. until next time stay tuned stay focused and stay money